Amen. I could hardly think of anything more appropriate to sing before coming before God's word than to say, cause your word to come alive in me. Give me eyes for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Breath of God, breathe new life in me. Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been in a series on the book of Ephesians, calling it God's New People. In Ephesians chapter 1, we talked about, uh, we saw there, uh, the work that God has done in eternity past to save men and women for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also Paul's prayer at the end of that passage that God's people would comprehend what it is that's taken place in their hearts. There's this eternal purpose that God has carried out in Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul starts to get more specific. He talks about how in time God moved upon the souls of individual men and women to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to read this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Last week, we considered verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, which give really a horrifying picture of the human race outside of Jesus Christ. We saw last week what human nature is truly like, being dead in trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world, under the dominion of Satan, and living out life in the lust of the flesh and in sinful indulgence. And there's that, that terrifying statement at the end of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. We saw last week that that phrase doesn't necessarily mean that we were just such wrathful people, but it actually means we were destined, doomed to suffer the wrath of God. Paul says that they followed the course of this world. They were under the dominion of Satan. They lived in the lusts of their flesh. And they were destined, they were condemned to face the wrath of God. This is the Bible's picture of human nature and the human race outside of Christ. And we talked somewhat last week about various proposals that a sinful man has given about how to rectify human nature. We talked about the idea that, that man is fundamentally good and that he's uh, making progress, always getting better and better, and how that theory, uh, known as progressivism, has basically been debunked over the last 50 years or so. What we see in the Bible is a fundamentally honest picture of what human nature is like outside of Christ. Make no mistake. The Bible gives a realistic picture of what men and women are like, what boys and girls are like. Human nature is basically bad. It's basically broken. It's basically fractured. There's been a dislocation. There's been a rupture. Something is wrong with us. And uh, that should be self-evident when we look at the world. 
You know, one very simple way, maybe you've heard others say this before, one very simple way we see uh, human nature work out in a fundamentally sinful and evil way is simply in our children. Uh, Do you have to teach, parents, you have to teach your children to do wrong. You have to tell them, okay, this is how you disobey, okay? This is what you need. If you want to disobey, this is what you need to do. Here are the, the five steps to disobeying mom and dad. Well, no, of course not. You have to teach your children to do right. And I would guess there's not a parent here who has not experienced the showdown I'm about to describe. Maybe it happened at six months or 12 months or 18 months, but we all know this experience, right? Here's the child, here's little Johnny, and there's a vase here, or there's a computer screen here, or something fragile, and Johnny is going out to touch it, and what does mom say? Don't do it, Johnny. Don't touch. Don't touch. And he looks at the vase, and he looks at mom, and he leans a little closer, he says, Johnny, don't do it. Don't touch. He looks at the vase, he looks at mom. What does he do? He touches it. He touches it. You don't have to teach him to do that. Human nature is fundamentally bad. Disobedience happens that way. It's the way we're made. We're, we're sons and daughters of disobedience. We are children of wrath. And I mentioned last week, maybe you share this experience with me, it's one of the reasons why I came to embrace the Bible and become a Christian. Because in a culture that's lying to me about human nature, I saw a fundamentally honest and accurate picture in the Scriptures of what human nature is fundamentally like. Well, this week, we get to the good stuff. Last week was all pessimism about the human race. Today is all about optimism regarding God and what He can do for sinful men and women through Jesus Christ. This is the outline I'd like us to follow this morning. Four points. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7. The points are these. First, I want to tell you of the God who acts. The God who acts. Secondly, we want to see the foundation of God's action. And thirdly, we want to see the action taken. And then fourthly and finally, the reason for God's action. First of all, let's see together the God who acts. Look with me at verse 4. After describing uh, the darkness and wickedness that men are in, we read these words at the start of verse 4. But God... But God. I was texting with a pastor friend here in Winston this morning. He said, what are you preaching on? I said, Ephesians 2.4. He wrote back, that's wonderful. Two words that change everything. Isn't that awesome? But God. Two words that change everything. On November 6, 1955, the Reformed Welsh Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones approached the pulpit of Westminster Chapel in the heart of London. And that day, he preached what many consider to be his greatest sermon, and he preached it on just these two words from Ephesians 2.4, but God. And in the introduction of his message, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, With these two words, we come to the introduction of the Christian message, the peculiar, specific message which the Christian faith has to offer us. These two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God, which the apostle goes on to describe and define in the following verses, end quote. The Christian message to the world, the gospel message, is fundamentally about a God who takes initiative. It's about a God who acts. It's about a God who sees an issue and addresses it. It is about a God who takes decisive and definitive action on behalf of sinners. 
We don't deny the picture of the human race of the world in verses 1 through 3. But we come with a glorious message of what God can do for those who are caught in darkness, death, and sin. God will act decisively and definitively on behalf of sinners. And God's action in these verses is taken against impossible odds. He breaks in and intervenes when things are the darkest, when circumstances are bleakest, when there seems to be no way out. That's when God acts. Remember this. Our God is a God of the fourth quarter. Our God is a God of the eleventh hour. When things are darkest, when things are bleakest, that's when He breaks in with light. When there is nothing but death and trespasses and sins, God breaks in with life. We were lost. We were dead. We were condemned. We were following the course of this world. We were in bondage to Satan's power and living in the lust of our flesh. But God. The Christian God is a God who acts. He acts decisively. In the midst of deep darkness, he breaks forth with light. And in the midst of certain death, he brings life. And God has done this time after time after time for human beings lost in sin. I hope each one of us has testimonies, uh, uh, but God testimonies, stories we can share about things looked dark and God then entered and intervened and broke in. I'm thinking of a young man right now that I knew uh, growing up, a family very dear to mine in the church that we grew up in. And as he entered his teenage years, 16, 17, 18, uh, his life was just a constant downward spiral. And he got caught up in, in, in sexual promiscuity. He got caught up, first of all, in alcohol addiction and then all sorts of experimental drugs and ended up strung out on heroin. And I can remember their parents in a prayer meeting with tears in their eyes saying, please pray for our son. It's never looked worse than this. If he continues on this course, it will be an early death for our son. Against all odds, God broke in. He cleared away the darkness and he brought light in that young man's life and he was converted. God moved in that situation in a wonderful way. Things looked impossible, but God, he broke in. I'm thinking of another young woman. Some of us may know this story for those who were at Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Young woman, uh, grew up in the church, began to live out her life in her teenage years in very flagrant and sinful ways. Uh, long story short, it ended in a drunken rage that ended her, or landed her in prison for several years. It just looked awful. No way out. This could not be any worse. And in power, God moved. He broke in. He entered and he saved that young woman. And her life now is a testimony to the grace of God, the God who acts and intervenes. It's not just in individuals' lives, though, that we see this. Who would have predicted in 1949 that the land of China would have more Christians in it than any other country in the world by this time in the 21st century? Closed to Christianity... A government that was oppressive, that sought to undermine and subjugate the efforts of Christians to spread the gospel. And now there's anywhere from 50 to 100 million Christians in the land of China. Who would have predicted that? But God. God acted on behalf of sinful people in the land of China. And he birthed his church there. And he has been saving men and women day after day after day and advancing the gospel in that dark land. I can remember even this year, uh, my wife's grandmother was dying of cancer, antagonistic toward the gospel her entire life. I mean, just hateful toward Christ and his gospel and living out her life in very uh, open, sinful ways. And I remember us praying that God would save her. And to my shame, I seem to have no faith that he actually would do it. 
I mean, I really, it's like Sarah laughing in her heart, right? That, that she's going to have a child. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm 99 years old. That's not going to happen. I laughed in my heart. There's no way this is going to happen. We've seen this story played out. She is such a wicked woman. She hates the God. No way. And we believe wonderfully in the last two weeks of her life, God saved her and converted her and broke into her darkness and brought light. Listen, if you have a but God story you're thinking of, you need to say amen. Amen. God breaks in and intervenes and acts in the lives of sinners. Our God is a God of decisive action, of intervention. He moves, he acts, he intervenes in the lives of sinners. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, under the dominion of Satan, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, living out our lives in the lusts of our flesh. And we were children of wrath. But God. But God. First of all, we've seen the God who acts. The God who acts. Now, secondly, let's see the foundation of God's action. Why is it that God acted? Where did that come from? What moved him to act on behalf of sinners like us, of sinners like these Ephesian Christians? Look at verse 4 with me again, please. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. And let's stop there. God's decisive action taken on behalf of sinners is understood here to be the result, the overflow of his rich mercy and his great love. You don't have to turn to these texts, but I want to mention a few of them. uh, Because I contend that mercy and love are integral to the character of God. The way in which we're supposed to think about God is as a God of mercy and as a God of love. Exodus 34, 6 says this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This theme is picked up again, Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And I'm guessing most, if not all of you, know the statement in 1 John 4, 8, which says, God is love. God is love. A phrase, admittedly, that's often misunderstood, but it's nonetheless true that God is love. John didn't say this in 1 John. Beloved, let us hate one another, for hate is of God, and everyone who hates is born of God. He who hates not his brother knows not God, because God is hate. No, no, no. We're to love each other, because God is love. It's integral to his person, to his nature. It's who he is. This is God. He's a God of love, a God who is rich and mercy. And we need to affirm, because the Scriptures affirm, that he is indeed a God of justice. That he is indeed angry with the wicked every day. Yes, he will judge the world in righteousness and he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And yes, he will pour out his wrath on all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible maintains he is a God principally governed by rich mercy and steadfast love. And this is a really important point for me because I think sometimes those outside the Christian faith and even some of those who are truly Christians get it the other way around. We need to understand that our God is a God who's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. And He's abounding in steadfast love. There's a subtle distortion I want you to appreciate. Some people say, okay, so we see that God has these two attributes, one of anger and one of love. 
I don't think that's a fair representation of the Bible's teaching. The picture that the book of Exodus gives, the Psalms give, the book of Ephesians give, is that God is principally governed by mercy and love. He's slow to anger, but he abounds in steadfast love. What's the picture? There's more of one of these things than the other. It doesn't mean that more people are going to be saved on judgment day than are not. I'm not saying that. But God leans in love toward a lost person. The picture we should have toward God is very much like the picture of the father of the prodigal son. He's not waiting up in a corner room of the house in his leather recliner saying, if that son ever wants to come back to me, he could come and kiss my feet. He's staying on the front porch and he's, he's looking. Who knows how many days he was out there. And he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he sees his son off in the distance runs after his son. Why? Because our God is a God who abounds in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. So towards you, Christian, and even towards you who are lost, I want you to know that God is leaning toward you in love. He abounds in love. He delights to show mercy. He doesn't delight in anger in the way that he delights in showing mercy. God is not leaning away from you with arms folded. He's leaning into you. He wants to dispense his love, to dispense his mercy. And I call on you, my lost friend here today. Embrace that image and know that that's founded on the truth of the Bible. God leans towards you in love and he's sending the gospel forth to you. Even in this service, arms are spread wide and he's saying, my son, come home. Come home. I will love and receive you and show you mercy. But remember this. It's not that God does not possess a quality of anger. He's slow to anger. He is angry with the wicked. And he will be angry with you if you reject his son. He's slow to anger. He's patient. Today is the day of salvation. You're here this morning. He's slow to anger. But there's coming a day where he will dispense his anger and his wrath full stop. Well, don't wait till then. Come to Christ today and embrace the God who uh, uh, works out of love and rich mercy on behalf of sinners. There's one other point. I want to make here while we're looking at the foundation of this action that God has taken, that he's, he's rich in mercy, that he's steadfast in love. There are some who teach that God only loves people after they've come to Christ and been saved. The argument goes like this, while they're sinners, while they're lost, while they're dead in sins, God has no love for them. There's a, a wing of the church that teaches that. I want to say to you uh, that that is a teaching antithetical to the gospel. That that is a doctrine of demons. That that is a distortion of the Bible's teaching. The Bible teaches that there is a general love that God has for all men. God does love people who are in their lost state. That's why he sent his son. God so loved the world, past tense, that he sent his son, past tense, but a little bit later in time, so that whoever believes, present tense, could be saved. Romans 5, 8. God loved us while we were yet sinners, right? How about Ephesians 2, 5, or 2, 4? But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He looked upon my hopeless state and led me to the cross, right? Our God doesn't wait for us to shape up before his love is expressed to us. Listen, his love is expressed to each and every one of you today because the gospel is being held out to you with an open hand. And if you would come to him, he would embrace you in his arms with his rich mercy and his steadfast love. But what is it in God that caused him to act on behalf of sinners? This God of action, what moved him? It is great mercy 
and great love. Now thirdly, look with me at the heart of the issue, and that is the action taken. We've talked about the God who acts. We've talked about the foundation of his action, what moved him to action. Now let's look at the action that God took on behalf of sinners. Please look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And one thing that is evident in the original language that is not brought out as clearly in our English versions is that each verb in these verses is a compound verb. So, so made us alive, raised us, seated us. They're all compound verbs. They all include the words together with, with them. So he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. He seated us together with Christ. Some of you know what I'm about to say. Characteristically of Paul in the book of Ephesians, we have here again the doctrine of union with Christ. Why do I have life if I'm a believer? Why is it that I'll be raised up at the last day? Why is it that Satan no longer has dominion over me? Because I'm united to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have been made alive together with Christ. That is, I'm united to Him. I'm attached to Him. So if He lives, I live. If He is raised up, I'm raised up. If He sits in heavenly places, I sit in heavenly places. I am His and He is mine. And the wonderful thing is all my debts, all my sins, the punishment due to my sins, He takes all of that and I get all His assets. I get all the spiritual blessings. I get life. I get resurrection. I get session in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the sharp contrast in verses 5 and 6 to what was previously stated in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, we were once dead in sin. Now we've been made alive in Christ. We were once subject to the prince of the power of the air. Now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Once we were children of wrath, subject to God's judgment, now in the ages to come, He shows the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were objects of wrath, vessels of wrath. Now we're trophies of God's grace. Paul is trying to impress upon these Ephesians glorious contrast after glorious contrast after glorious contrast. Some of you in your own lives can testify to this. I've heard some of you say this before. If you knew me, At 16 years old, you'd be shocked. The total renovation that's taken place in my life, I'm unrecognizable to my old friends, to my old sinful companions. It's always a glorious thing. You know, I I had had the privilege of being converted when I was 10, so I entered my teenage years in high school as a Christian. And so some of the more obvious sins were not as apparent in my life, but believe me, I was a sinner through and through. But it's been encouraging to me since graduating high school and college uh, to... Meet now, later on in adult life, some of those old high school friends who have been converted. Totally unrecognizable. The the stupid things some of us used to do, the foolish things we used to do, the sinful things we used to do. And now to see what God has done in their lives through their union with Christ. What a glorious contrast. And we should celebrate and magnify God for the contrast that has taken place in the lives of sinners. I regret... In this period of church planning, one thing we've not gotten to do as much as a church is to share testimonies. Uh, there just really hasn't been the right environment for that, but we hope to make that a larger part of our life. That brothers and sisters will share testimonies of what God has done, and we can all uh, witness, as it were, the glorious contrast that's taken place. What God has done in the heart of men and women, boys and girls. 
And before we leave this point, I want you to notice something I think is truly remarkable. If you look back in Ephesians 1, verses 19 through 20, at this point Paul gives a prayer. And, and we said when we looked at this text that this, this prayer for the Ephesians bleeds into kind of this doxology and praise for the power of God in Christ. And he says this, verse 19, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand heavenly places. And now look at Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an amazing parallel. What's the difference between Ephesians 1, 19 through 20 and Ephesians 2, 5 through 6? Now we're included. It's not just that Christ was made alive and raised up and seated in heavenly places. Now, I am. In what sense can it be said that we sinful people are seated with Christ in heavenly places? What a glorious truth. Through our union with Christ, because we're attached to Him, we are raised with Him. We are where He is. He is with us. Which leads to one final point regarding the action that God has taken on our behalf. To Christians who are familiar with other portions of Scripture, it may not be news to them that they have been made alive with Christ, that they have in some sense been raised with Christ. But this idea of being seated with Christ, being seated, in what sense are we seated with Christ? Well, in that sermon on Ephesians 1, that prayer at the end, verses 15 through 23, we talked that, about this idea that Jesus being seated in the heavenly places is this idea that he's now above all the spiritual forces and satanic powers in the world. He reigns over all. Everything's been put under his feet. Well, it's not as though we're seated at the right hand of God and given the glory that Christ has given, but we, through Christ, through our union with him, are taken out from under the dominion of Satan. And we're now in that spiritual realm with him where Jesus reigns. What's the application I want to share with you? Paul's going to get to this later in the book of Ephesians. But I want to say this. You've been raised with Christ and seated with him if you're a believer. You're no longer under the dominion of Satan. If you're in Christ, glory be to God, you're no longer under the dominion of Satan. So don't act like it. You don't have to live by his rules anymore. You're not a son of disobedience. We still have sins, but you are not Satan's. You're seated with Christ. We need to act like it. Let's live like we have a new Lord, like we have a new master, that we're not in bondage and in shackles to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Brothers and sisters, we've been raised with Christ. of a glorious inheritance in the Lord Jesus. We are seated with him, and we are no longer in bondage to our sin. We don't need to live like it. There's power available to us in fighting our sin and overcoming our sin. We don't have to live by Satan's rules anymore. He's not your master anymore. The picture that comes to my mind, it's in some ways a very sad picture. You might know uh, of a situation where there's uh, a child and he's abused. And, and then there comes this adoptive family that's going to take this child. This child's been beaten, he's been struck, he's been hit, he's been abused. And he comes into the house, and there's still this sort of trembling and this fear in the house of this new father. 
He needs to learn that his, his father is loving, his father is tender. This father's not going to beat him like his last father. Look, you're no longer in the dominion of Satan. You're no longer subject to his abuse. You're no longer subject to his rules. You're under the lordship of Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. And through the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you can live like it. You can live like one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and is united wonderfully, profoundly to him. But now, fourthly and finally, fourthly and finally, we have the reason for the action. We've seen the God who acts. We've seen the foundation of his action. We've looked at the action himself that's making us alive together with Christ, uniting us to his son. And fourthly and finally, why did God do all this? Please look at verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're Christ's bragging rights. We're trophies of his grace. Isn't that a wonderful idea? This person lost in sin, dead in sin, now belongs to Christ as a trophy of his grace, and we are to redound to the glory of Christ. That one who was dead in trespasses and sins, that one who was defined by the world's immoral standards, that one who was subject to the dominion of Satan, that one who was consumed by lust and disobedience, that one who was subject to the wrath of God, that one is now said to be a trophy of God's grace. What a wonderful, profound thought. That me, that I, that you, that those who were dead in sin would be considered trophies of the grace of God. And so God is going to point at the church, at redeemed sinners, and say, look what my son has done. He took those who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's made them alive. Glory be to Christ. We'll be trophies of God's grace. Think of that. We're worms, nothing at all, now counted as a glorious display of the kindness and grace of God in Christ Jesus. And I'll just say again, let's act like it. Let's act like it. Let's mortify our sin. Let's beautify the bride of Christ. Let's act as those who are to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now in closing, I want to share uh, three points of application. Three points of application. Two, to those of you who are in Christ, who identify as Christians, And then one to those of you who are not. First of all, brothers and sisters, please recognize, recognize that your God is the God who acts. Your God is the God who intervenes. Your God is the God who acts decisively and definitively for his people. Live like it. Pray like it. Hope like it. Our God is the God who brings light out of darkness. He's the God who brings life out of death. Our God will do things for people. You got someone you're praying for, someone who's lost, you want to see them saved? Well, thank goodness we have the God who acts on our side. The God who loves to show mercy and delights in steadfast love. Pray like you're praying to a God of initiative, a God who acts. Pray like you're praying to the but God of Ephesians 2 and verse 4. Let's live like it, brothers and sisters. Let's hope like it. Even something as simple as our vision meeting tonight as we discuss the plans for our church. That old great saying, uh, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Let's not insult our God, the God who acts with low expectations about what he can do through his church and through 
His gospel. Recognize, my brother, my sister, whatever you're up against, your God is the God who acts. Secondly, let us no longer live as those who are dead in sin. See, we're united to Christ gloriously, wonderfully, but we need to live out our union with Christ. Let us live as those who have been made alive in Christ. Don't walk as one who is in bondage to Satan. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You don't need to live like a child of wrath anymore. Live as a trophy of God's grace. There are profound implications in these texts for the way in which we ought to live our lives. We're to live as those who are united to a new master. Those who have access to unlimited resources and power through the Holy Spirit. Let's live that way. Let's fight our sin that way. Let's love one another that way. Let's share the gospel in that spirit. But now thirdly and finally, for those of you, you're not sure you're a Christian. or Maybe you know you're not a Christian. I have the joy of telling you that God is a God of love. Our God, the God of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, is a God of love. The Christian God is a God who is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He's rich in mercy. He's been slow to anger with you. I know that because you're here this morning. Our sins are so great. Our hearts are so untrue. God could take us out like that. And we would suffer the just punishment due to our sins if we're outside of Christ. God's been slow to anger with you. You kids, listen to me. God has been slow to anger with you. He's not poured out His anger and His wrath on you. The anger and wrath that you deserve if you're not a Christian. He's been slow to anger. And praise God, he abounds in steadfast love. He's a God of love who loves to show mercy. His love has been expressed in manifold ways to you, through Christian parents, through Christian pastors, through friends who preach the gospel to you and open up the Bible to you. Let me call you to not reject his love. Don't reject the love of God. Don't trespass on his patience. I charge you in the presence of Christ to cry out to God in repentance and faith and accept and embrace His love. Because listen, He is slow to anger, but He won't wait forever. There is coming a day where He'll judge the wicked. He's been abundantly clear about that in His Word. There's coming a day where He will pour out His anger and His wrath full stop. But it's not today. It's not right now. Could be tonight. Could be tomorrow. Could be in 2018. But he's slow to anger now and he abounds in steadfast love. And I have the privilege as a preacher of the gospel to hold out to you the love of God. And I call you, dear children, anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, embrace the love of God and cry out to him in repentance and faith. And you can have the confidence that he'll show you mercy. That he'll be like that father who's looking out on the front porch calling you to come. And when he sees you far off, he'll run and embrace you and receive you. And deal decisively with your sins and unite you to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace the love of God and cry out to him in repentance and faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, for those of us who are Christians in this place, we can say from the bottom of our hearts that we once were lost in darkest night. We thought we knew the way, the sin that had promised joy and life, 
and led us to the grave. We had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved us first, we would refuse you still. But as we ran our hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon our hopeless state and led us to the cross. We have beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in our place. You bore the wrath reserved for us. And now all we know is grace. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Our only boast is Christ. We boast in the God who has acted on our behalf to unite us to the Lord Jesus. We thank you that this is the Christian message to the world. That you are a God rich in mercy, abounding in love. And you delight to make dead people alive in Christ. And you delight to raise us with Him and to seat us with Him. And to make us trophies of your grace. Do that for every soul. Seal every soul. Knit every soul in this place to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Move upon us to run to Him in repentance and faith and to put our trust in Him and to allow ourselves to be enfolded and embraced in the loving arms of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name.